We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning. It's good to see you. It's it's a joy to be with you today. Um, I could not preach my last sermon to you and not wear a puffy vest. Um, because I've worn many a puffy vest on many a Sundays um, to this church, and it became such a joke at one point that men just started buying puffy vests just to wear them. Started a fashion trend, the only fashion trend I've ever started. Um, I was messaging with uh, one of our former founding pastors, Ronnie Kurtz. We were messaging this morning. Uh, He left uh, Emmaus about a year ago, uh, and he's preaching for the first time at his new church today. And so we were messaging. He was telling me he was praying for me today. I was telling him I was praying for him. I sent him a selfie of me wearing the vest and said, couldn't get by today without wearing the vest. And he sent me a selfie back, which if you know Ronnie is like, man, it's a statement of love right there because he just does not take selfies. And he was wearing a cardigan. And he said, I'm glad to see we're both on brand this morning. And so um, it was a joy to get to kind of chat with him as well. Church, I, I, I love you. Um, I stand before you today for the first time ever, um, not as your pastor, um, but simply as a fellow brother in Christ um, who desires to encourage you with the word of God. I texted, when Ronnie and I were texting this morning, I messaged him, I just said, give them Jesus, because that's something that him and I used to say to each other every Sunday before one of us would preach in the early days of Emmaus. And in a moment, we're going to jump in um, to the book of John. You can go ahead and take your Bible, and you can turn there. Um, We'll be in the book of John in chapter 2, beginning in a moment. Um, Before we do that, there's been um, a lot of you who have simply just asked, hey, so what, what are you doing? Right, like where are you going and what are you doing and what's this look like? And, and, and I get it, it's kind of a, it's a weird thing to leave a church as a pastor and not go to pastor another church or to not be disqualified because of some sin and leave. Those are, those are both types of ways that pastors leave that our culture understands. So pastor's been disqualified and, and or fired or they're going to another church. But, but when you leave to not, not step into another church and you leave not because of disqualification, it's like, what does this actually look like and mean? And, and enough of you have asked, and some of you even asked, would you just share with the church briefly what that looks like for you? So I just wanted to take like three minutes and do that um, for you. Over the last uh, several years, actually, back before COVID, um, a desire had continued growing in me um, that, that was like curious about what it would look like for me in the later days of my life, I turned 42 this coming week, and so for some of you, that's not the later days yet, but it's the later day, it's, it's the latest day I've ever had, all right? And I started thinking, in the later days of my life, in the second half of my ministry, and I was thinking when I was 50 or so, uh, what would this look like for me to maybe not be pastoring and be spending my time caring for pastors? Um, COVID happened, and that became even more real of an understanding of a need going on in the lives of pastors. And, and then things just began to kind of continue. And then my family went through a season of immense and deep suffering since COVID happened as well. And, and seeing how pastors came alongside of me and cared for me, and knowing that there's pastors out there who are, who are carrying their own anxieties and fears and troubles um, and worries and sins, while at the same time carrying those things for all of their church members. Um, And and many of those pastors don't have elders around them who love them. 
They don't have men who are caring for them. It's not safe for them to to vocalize that they are weak or that they're struggling or that they need a break or that they're in sin. Um, All of those things jeopardize their family's even livelihood, right? And, And a lot of pastors just don't even have a friend. Right? It's an incredibly lonely position. The, the, the understanding of that need grew more and more in my heart as my family went through suffering and as I began to walk through suffering with other families as well. And so this desire continued to grow more and more in me that I would be able to spend more of my time caring for pastors like that on their dark nights. Right? And so um, in the recent months, that just kind of became clear that it wasn't when I was 50, and it wasn't even five years from now, but, but it was the right time to step out and go do that. And so um, over the last couple months, my wife and I have started uh, Hedger Counseling Co. Uh, my wife's a licensed professional counselor. Um, she will be, continue to see clients just as she has. She has a full caseload, about 65, 70 clients that she sees. She'll continue to do that. And in addition to that, then, um, I'm in certification right now through the Gospel Care Collective as a, um, as a counselor. And so I will be um, moving into doing counseling, coaching, and consulting for pastors and churches that way and walking with them. Um, that won't pay the bills for us right now. Um, and, uh, and so um, in the meantime, I'm also... Uh, uh, gotten my insurance license, and I'm an insurance broker. So if you see me mention online, hey, if, you're, if you need life insurance, let me know. That's not because we quit chasing after helping pastors. It's actually part of the vision and mission. The desire is not only to provide for my family, but as I'm able to build an agency that way, that that would enable us to then provide affordable care for pastors because I'm not dependent upon the pastor to pay my family's income. Right, so we can provide affordable care for pastors who can't afford it to be able to walk with them. So if you need life insurance, let me know, but I don't want to get too much into turning of the table situation here and selling stuff, right? And, uh, but you'll be contributing to a ministry to pastors. We'll just put it that way. Um, but, but so that's what we're doing. And so, um, so we're selling insurance. We're counseling and caring for pastors and churches. Um, and, and we're moving forward with what that looks like, not really knowing what six months from now looks like, just trusting each step of the way. Churches have been an immense joy to pastor you. I sat in the parking lot outside the church here this morning when I pulled up, and I just wept for a while and cried for a while at the the grief of leaving you, um, the grief of leaving this church. Um, What a sacred honor and privilege it has been for 22 years to pastor, um, that God would entrust me to to, to churches and to his sheep, specifically for the last eight and a half years to you. Um, What a joy and an honor and a privilege it's been to walk with you in sin, to walk with you in grief, to walk with you in loss and in suffering and in struggles and in doubts, to celebrate Jesus, to send our best friends around the world with the gospel. What a joy it's been. Keep doing that. Some of you all run into Target this week, run into at Target this week. To be honest, more of the wives than the husbands. I'll run into you at Target probably. Um, Some of you I might not see again until the Feast of the Lamb. Um, that'll be a good day. Run faithfully. That said, let me pray for you, and then we're going to get into this text. Jesus, I thank you for your word. It has given such life and strength to us for the last eight and a half years. Your word on Sunday mornings in this dusty old theater 
and in a, an office space in downtown Parkville in those early years, your word has met us and has sustained us to the next week. Week after week after week. We thank you for your word that is living and well today. And so today, may your word speak to us. And Spirit, as Ben has already prayed, would you preach a better sermon than I have prepared for your people and this church today? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You don't think about your last sermon very often when you're pastoring at a church. This is a really big book to choose a text from. So I've chosen seven texts from this big book to try to help it out. Don't panic. We'll move through them pretty quickly. We're not diving too deeply into any of them. The, the reason specifically that I chose seven is not because I couldn't pick out one specific text. There's lots of beautiful ones. But because what I want to leave you with more than anything is simply looking into the eyes of Jesus. Right? I don't title very many sermons. In fact, I've probably never titled a sermon unless I was forced to. Um, but today I have, and this sermon is simply titled, The Jesus We Follow. I want us to look at the Jesus we follow. And I want us to do so from seven brief snapshots of how Jesus interacted with people just like you and just like I, me. How he interacted with us. And I want us to look at Jesus today and I want us to be reminded of his heart towards us. I want to remind you of his love for you. I want to remind you of his compassion for you and of his kindness towards you and of the salvation he has given you. And so let's look first at John chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. In John 2, verse 1, we have the story of Jesus at a wedding feast. And here we see how Jesus interacts with the foolish and the shame-filled. With the foolish and the shame-filled. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it come, came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This wedding was hosted by foolish people. They either planned foolishly they invited foolishly, they paid foolishly, or the people that they paid to do provided the wine foolishly. Someone missed the boat here. Major details were dropped, and the family's running out of wine, and there's nothing worse at a party even today than to run out of food and drink. Right? You want enough food and drink. When you invite people over to your house, it's the number one question. When we invite people over, do we have enough food? 
But in Cana, at this time, it was even a bigger deal because for this family to run out of wine would be a, make them a social outcast for the rest of their lives. For this wedding feast to run out of wine would turn the day of celebration for this groom and this bride into the day of shame for the rest of their lives. They would be known as the family who could not provide wine for all their guests. In fact, it was such a big deal in their culture, they could be sued legally for this. Can you imagine going to a party, they run out of your favorite drink, and you're like, I'm suing, right? Thanks for the invite. Thanks for all the celebration we've had, but I was still thirsty, and you ran out. I'm going to sue you and your family. It was a day of public shame and humility for this family because someone made a foolish decision. Someone led foolishly. Enter Jesus. Jesus comes into the scene because his mom invites him in. Right? The reason many of us have done some things in our lives, we only did it because mom told us to do it. And he even argues with her at first. It's not my time. And then he does it. And he takes the jars of water and he turns them into wine and he gives it to them and says, go give this to the head of the banquet. The head of the banquet drinks it and he's never tasted wine this good. It, it, it blows his mind, especially since it's at the end of the wedding when typically you serve the worst wine, right? You serve the worst wine at the end of the wedding because everyone's drunk and they don't know the difference between good wine and bad wine at that point. But here they've saved the good wine for the end of the wedding. And the, 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 the head of the banquet celebrates this. He even praises the family. What would have been a night of shame actually turns into a night of honor. What would have been a night of public humiliation turns into a night of celebration, for them. And the only people at the entire wedding who know, know what happened, who, who know the story, are the servants. Jesus' first public miracle is only observed by the least of these at this feast. And church, Jesus could have been like so many of us who our parents are when our kids do something foolish. We instruct them, we correct them, we set them on their way, but in the midst of it, we also shame them. How could you? Can't believe you made that decision. Don't you ever do that again? There's shaming words that we give to our children unintentionally many times, but that are devastating to them. And imagine, I mean, Jesus could have done this. He could have turned the water into wine and then presented it and then came out and been like, oh, no, 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 head of the banquet, I did that. You all had ran out of wine. This family had nothing for you, but my mom wanted this to be a good party, so I made the water into wine. Jesus could have taken the credit and still allowed the family to sit in shame, but instead, Jesus remained silent. And he allowed the family's shame to be covered in glory. To you who have made great mistakes, he is the one who never makes a mistake. To you who are foolish, he is the eternally wise. To you who live in shame, he's the one who covers your shame with his acceptance. To you who stand to lose it all, he is the one who promises to restore all things to everyone who calls upon his name. This is the Jesus we follow. Next story. 
John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus and the least of these. Now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons, and as did his livestock. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. I call her the least of these because of the totality of who she is in this story. She's a Samaritan and therefore an ethnic and a social enemy of the Jews. She's a woman and therefore culturally below a man in their time. She was an adulterer and therefore an outcast of her own community. She's at the well at noon by herself because the other women won't be with her or she doesn't want to be with them because of her shame and her sin. Perhaps she's even slept with their husbands. She was the least of these. And Jesus enters the scene to the woman who's alone, who's the outcast. Jesus enters the scene and he sees her. You study Jesus in the Gospels over and over and over again. It says that he saw them. He sees her. And when he sees her, he speaks to her. And he invites this outcast to serve him. Would you give me a drink of water? 
And he knows her story, including all of her shame and her sin, and yet he doesn't shame her for it. Instead, he offers her life. And when she brings it back around to a spiritual question to go, I know, I know, the Messiah is going to come, and when he shows up, he'll figure all this out. Jesus looks at her and says, I'm him. Just like the first miracle was done before no one but the servants, the first time he has publicly said, I am the Messiah, is before the outcast, the adulterous woman at the well. Jesus making himself known to the least of these. He sees and he knows. He doesn't shame and he reveals himself. To you who are the outcasts, he welcomes you at his table. To you who thirst, he is living water. To you who go from one love of life to another, seeking what you long for, he is the springs that well up within, meeting all of your needs. To you who have given your life to sin, he is the promised Messiah who died for you and rose again and offers you forgiveness and life today. This is the Jesus we follow. John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we see Jesus and the hopeless. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five, five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed. And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. We have the hopeless. A man who hasn't walked in 38 years. Right? Like, like that's, that's all of my life minus four years. Like, I can't imagine not walking for that period of time. For 38 years, he hasn't walked, and now he's laying by this pool because there's this thing that happens at this pool when apparently an angel touches the pool and the water stirs and the first person in is healed. And so here, around this pool, this isn't like your summer pool where you like, like to go swim. This is a pool full of people with disease, people who are cripples, invalids, people who can't move and live and function on their own. And they're laying around the pool trying to be the first one into the water to be healed. And you see this man's hopelessness when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? Because when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? In this man's mind, there's only one way for healing to come. It's this water. And there's no one who loves him enough to help him. He can't get in on his own. He can't crawl there fast enough. He can't roll into the pool. No one cares about him enough to carry him and put him in. And he's stuck there. I mean, remember, this guy can't walk. Like, even if he gives up on the pool, where is he going? 
And how long is it taking him to get there? What's that look like? Like he's just stuck here in hopelessness. No one sees him, knows him, cares. In fact, they push him out of the way to get past him for their own good. And Jesus simply says, do you want to be healed? And then Jesus heals him. Jesus speaks to him and says, get up, take your bed, and walk. And legs that have not stood for 38 years are strengthened, bones are straightened, muscles become well, and the man stands up and walks out of the pool with hope. To you who have lost hope, hope lives, and his name is Jesus. To you who have given up, Jesus has not quit. To you who need healing, he is the great physician. To you who need help, he is our great helper. To you who feel you can't go another day, he gives strength to your legs to walk forward. This is the Jesus we follow. Next story, John 9. just saw Jesus and the hopeless. Here's Jesus and the needy. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one, um, when no one can um, work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground, and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus and the needy. This man's been blind his whole life. When you're blind, you have a lot of needs. People have to help you with a lot of things. It's hard just to function in life. My daughter in high school, one of her best friend was blind. And uh, we met her best friend because I accidentally tripped her in the hallway at the school. Um, felt like the bad guy who tripped the blind girl, you know. And they became best friends. It was, all worked out well, but I remember her coming over and just the reality is she was in a new place, a new house. She didn't know where everything was at our house. She had to be led by the hand around the house and shown where rooms were and doors were and stairs were and other things that might could be hot or dangerous were. She had to be helped. She was needy in every way. And here's this man born blind, needy on the side of the road with his cup asking for money so that he could just buy some bread in his need. I want you to notice what the disciples do. When the disciples see the man in his need, listen to this carefully, church. They turn him into a case study. They see a man in need, and they immediately go to their theological and their philosophical questions about why he's in need. So what 
What do you think the issue is with his blindness? Was it his sin and therefore God made him blind? Or was it the sin of his parents that God made him blind for? Who's God punishing with his blindness? They make the man a case study. But not Jesus. Jesus sees the man who's needy in his blindness, and he responds to their questions of their case study by simply meeting the man's need. He's not interested in the theological or philosophical questions in this moment. He's interested in caring for the man who's in need. And Jesus says, no, no. He's blind so that God might receive glory. The providence of God being displayed even in this man's suffering. But Jesus doesn't just leave it with answering that question. He actually goes over to the man and he heals him. And he gives him sight. To you who have need, he is your provider. To you who feel like all you do is require more help, he never tires of helping. To you who are blind and can't see the truth, he is the light of the world who opens the eyes of the blind. He never turns you into his case study. He's always near you to help you. This is the Jesus we follow. Chapter 11. This is a long story, so let's read in verse 23. What has happened is Jesus has a good friend. His name is Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus has come to their house. Verse 23. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 28, and when she had said this, she went down and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when, Jesus, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he has been dead four days. 
And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Jesus with the grieving. His friend had died. The family was mourning. And Jesus comforts them. He comforts them with the truth of theology. He comforts them with the truth of who he is. He, he says, listen, like, I am the resurrection and the life. He's going to live again. I know he'll live again one day. No, I'm telling you, he will live again. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe in me? Your hope is not only in a day to come. It is right now in me. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe that. And then when Jesus sees, remember, Jesus knows what's about to happen. He's about to raise him from the dead. If anyone could be ambivalent to the sadness of the moment, it could be Jesus. But when he sees their sadness and their grief, he's moved deeply, even troubled, and he weeps with them. He weeps with them. And then he resurrects their grief. In fact, he takes the grief and he puts it in the grave and he takes what caused them grief, and he brings it to life. He wept with them, and then he brought life from their grief. To you who are sad, he sees and he comforts. To you who grieve, he cares, and he is the great counselor. To you who cry when you're all alone, he weeps with those whom he loves. To you who face the darkness of death, He is the resurrection and the life. This is the Jesus that we follow. Two more. John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Jesus has died. He's risen again. His disciples don't know what to do, so they go out fishing. Peter has denied him. (laughs) Tommy laughed. He likes that idea. When I don't know what to do, let's go fishing. Sounds like a very reasonable thing for these men to do. Very wise. Peter, if you remember, has denied Jesus three times. He was bold to say he would die for Jesus. But when the pressure was put on, he denied even knowing him. I mean, for every sense of the word, Peter failed in his faithfulness. He failed in his friendship. He failed in his courage. I mean, just an absolute failure in Jesus' greatest moment of need. And now he's fishing, and Jesus shows up on the shore. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no, which is my answer normally when people ask that. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, which is John, the writer of this. Remember, he likes to refer to himself as the one Jesus loved. 
right? Me, the one Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer, gar- he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. <laughs> and the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. I always love in the story, my imagination, I picture Peter diving into the water to swim to Jesus and the boat still gets there before him. That's not in the story. I just think that would be a great detail if that did happen. He's eager to see Jesus. Hear hear this. The man who had denied Jesus days before is eager to see him today. He's eager. He's eager. And when Jesus got out, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And then Jesus, verse 12, said to them, come and have breakfast. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Do you you remember why? Because three times Peter had been given the chance to say that he knows Jesus. And every time he denied even knowing him. And now Jesus gives him three chances to say, yes, I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, verse 18, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus shows up to the one who had denied even knowing him. And he feeds him. He sets a table before him, and he dines with him. We don't like to eat with those who have hurt us and betrayed us. But Jesus does. It's the only type of person he eats with. His table's full of those who betrayed him and denied him and rejected him and hated him. He invites him to this table, and they eat fish, and then he restores him, and he goes, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. I'm not done with you yet, Peter. Not, I'm not here to scold you. I'm not here to get on to you. I'm not here to be like, okay, well, you're lucky I'm letting you back into the group, but you're now a lesser part of the group. Just hang out on the outskirts. You'll get in. Peter, do you love me? Okay, that's what matters. Go feed my sheep. I've got plans. I'm not done with you. In fact, Peter, one day you will be led to your death against your own will. You will die on my account. Later, Peter looks at John and goes, what about him? What happens to him? Jesus goes, who cares if I let him live the rest, like, until I come back? You do what I've set forward for you to do. To you who have failed, he is patient and steadfast. To you who have quit, he is not done with you. To you who have denied him, he calls you by name. To you who have lived in fear and given up courage, he still sends you. This is the Jesus we follow. And then the last one, I wish it was in John because it would be really easy, but just flip backwards to Luke 
chapter 23. I couldn't let us go without this one. Luke 23. Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying. There's two men hanging on the cross with him, criminals, hanging on their own crosses next to him. Verse 39 says this, chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus and the sinner who has nothing to offer. Jesus and the sinner who has nothing to offer. The thief brought nothing with him but sin and death. He's literally waiting to die. There's not another day ahead of him. This thief has no life to offer Jesus. It's not like, hey, I trust you. After I get off this cross, I'll live for you. I'll change my ways. Tomorrow will be different. I'll I'll do better. I'll, I'll share about you. I'll change. There is no change. There is no tomorrow. There's nothing he has to offer. The only thing he brings to Jesus is death. It's all he has. And faith. And to the one who can't give Jesus anything, to the one who can't offer him a lick of good, he simply comes in dying faith. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. To the ones who bring nothing but sin and death, he gives forgiveness in life. To the one who can never pay him back, He prepares a table for you in eternity. Come to him in faith with nothing but your sin and your death. Come to him in faith and he will give you life. This is the Jesus we follow. Whoever your pastors are and whatever tomorrow brings, this is the Jesus we follow. In Romans chapter two, verse four, it says it is the kindness of, of God that leads us to repentance. And that's what we see in these stories. We see a Jesus who is full of compassion and understanding, a Jesus who is graceful and loving, a Jesus who is weeping and shame covering, a Jesus who is helping, and a Jesus who is kind. And church, it's this kind of Jesus that Kansas City needs to hear from you. It's this kind of Jesus they need to see displayed from you. 
It's this kind of Jesus that will lead your children to eternal life. It's this kind of Jesus that is any hope at all for your spouse. It's this kind of Jesus that we follow who leads our friends and our coworkers and our family to repentance. It's this kind of Jesus who looks into the eyes of sinners and the least of these and the broken and the needy and the hurting and the failures, and he looks at them with compassion and gentleness and love and grace, and he says, follow me. This is the Jesus we all are desperate to follow. And this is the Jesus that will save our city. Be about that Jesus. Come to him each day just as Peter dove into the water. Swim to him in your failures. Come to him in your death. Come to him in your need. He'll never tire of you. And share the same Jesus with others. I'll close with the words of Eugene Peterson. He says, a congregation is composed of people who upon entering a church leave behind what people on the street name them or call them. A church can never be reduced to a place where goods and services are exchanged. It must never be a place where a person is labeled. It can never be a place where gossip is perpetuated. Before anything else, the church is a place where a person is named and greeted, whether implicitly or explicitly, in Jesus' name. It is a place where dignity is conferred. It's just what Jesus did to each person in these stories. He gave a new name and he gave dignity because he gave himself. We have Jesus. Be a church that gives Jesus to each other and to your city. I love you. Declare and display the Jesus whom we follow. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this word. I thank you for your faithfulness to us in it. May our hearts be overwhelmed with Jesus today. He is all that we have, which is wonderful because he's all that we need. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.